Hey y'all, I'm Tommy Tomlinson, and from WFAE in Charlotte, this is Southbound. Conversations with people from all walks of life about how the South shapes who they are and what they do. If this sound makes you tingle, this episode is right up your alley. That's the gobble of an Eastern wild turkey. And nobody knows more about wild turkeys than my guest today, Mike Chamberlain. He's a researcher at the University of Georgia and runs an online resource called the Wild Turkey Lab. Scientists now can use drones and GPS trackers to learn how turkeys get around. But it turns out there's still a lot we don't know about how wild turkeys live. The one thing we know for sure is they're a whole lot different than the butterballs that so many of us eat at Thanksgiving. And Mike Chamberlain is still trying to solve their mysteries. Here's our conversation. So, Mike Chamberlain, I wanted to ask about something that was in one of your recent Turkey Tuesday posts. And uh, it said in there, if I have this right, that the eastern turkey is on the whole louder than the western turkey. Could you sort of explain why that is? Yeah, sure. So if you look at a gobble, the way we look at, we, we record gobbling activity and we we process the gobbling data in a way where it produces a, a sonogram. So you can actually, quote unquote, see what the gobble looks like. And if you look at a, a gobble of an eastern bird, it's it's very pronounced on the sonogram. It's it's prolonged. It's quote unquote loud on the sonogram. You can you can see the signature very very clearly. And then if you look at a uh, in that particular post, I was also I was comparing it to a bird in Nebraska, and you see that the sonogram shows you clearly that the the gobble is is quote not as loud. It's not as pronounced on the on the sonogram to the point where when you you look at the pictures of the gobble side by side, it's pretty startling. I mean, the Eastern is much, it's longer, it's louder uh, versus say the bird in Nebraska, which is, was more of a gobble and it's over with, you know, the, whereas the, you know, an Eastern is, has that long pronounced, you know, that that's, that's visceral. You know, you can, you can feel it in your chest when they're close to you. And and what is your theory or what is, what is sort of the conclusion that you came to as to why that is? We think what's going on there is, you know, the Eastern subspecies lives with, I mean, there's obviously exceptions to this, but the Eastern subspecies is, is historically a, a forest bird. In fact, the, the, the subspecies name, Meliagris gallopilo sylvestris, sylvestris is forest. They're adapted to living in thicker, brushier, denser environments where they really need that gobble to pierce the environment, to really travel long distances, to to not be, quote unquote, kind of chewed up by the vegetation. They need that gobble to, to really go through the environment and attract attention versus as you move out west, you see open landscapes, uh, the birds are using gobbling to attract attention, but they're also displaying a lot. They're, they're strutting a lot out in the open. They have showier plumage, their feathers, you know, any turkey hunter that's been, you know, as you go out West, Rios and Merriam subspecies and Goulds, they have lighter feather tips on their tails. They're, they're a little brighter, 
you know, their plumage is showier and, and we think what's going on there is they're, you know, they just have different strategies. The gobble is, is used for attraction, but it, but it functions in different ways depending on where you are. Are there a lot of other sort of regional differences between types of turkeys? Yeah. I mean, you, other than the plumage, which, you know, I just talked about, you do see that, you know, as you go into the Osceola subspecies in Florida, their their legs tend to be longer, they're lankier, they're smaller. The eastern subspecies, you know, particularly as you go up into the Midwest, you get some, you know, they're quite large. Then you go to, say, Rio's and in, in Texas and in Oklahoma and parts of Kansas, and you get more tan kind of feather tips and they're a little smaller than Easterns. And then you, you go and you get into areas where Merriams are found and their plumage is even lighter colored than Rio's. And then when you get, you know, down into Mexico and Arizona where Goulds are found, you, you see the brilliant bright white tips on their, on their feathers to the point where they almost look silver when you, when you see them in the field. And so, yeah, otherwise they're, I mean, functionally they're all, kind of the same bird, but they do have, have some behavioral and plumage differences. One of the things I noticed from reading uh, some about you is that apparently it's pretty difficult to figure out just how many turkeys we have in this country. What are the, what are the challenges in, in kind of getting a good head count? Yeah, that's, that's one of the, the big unknowns we've worked under forever. We, we don't know how many turkeys are out there and, and there are a variety of reasons. One is they're just, you don't see them, you know, particularly in the eastern part of the United States. They're they live in areas where they're they're not visible, and and when you do see them, we don't know that you're seeing all of them. I mean, we know we're not. We you know we're no we know that we're not observing all of the birds as we move around, and so they're tough to count. They don't want to be seen at certain times of the year, so it just creates real challenges. And and there's a lot of work ongoing right now trying to figure you know, out, how do we come up with reliable estimates of how many are out there? Because until we do, we're, we are to some degree working in the dark. Is it harder to, to find or to get a good count of turkeys than it is like, I don't know, bald eagles or something like that? Yeah, because, you know, turkeys live in, in environments where they're kind of cryptic, you know, I mean, particularly you think about a forest, you know, you have a bird that's moving around in the forest and they may only move into areas where you could observe them periodically, whereas say birds, you know, raptors or birds of prey that are soaring that you can get a little bit better, you know, reliable estimates of, of how many are out there. Turkeys are tough. It's, it's, it's tough to figure out. We, there's some cool work going on using drones right now to count them at night. Uh, while they're in the tree roosting, there's some work using, you know, non-invasive stuff like feathers and droppings, you know, trying to estimate how many are out there. Uh, it, but it's, it's, it's tough. We're hoping at some point we can, we will be able to use the gobbling data that we collect as a, as a pretty good proxy for at least how many males are out there. I know you were just talking about that there are different varieties. So this is maybe overgeneralizing a little bit, but how is a wild turkey's life different than like, you know, the butterball we eat at Thanksgiving? Like what, how are they, how are those two turkeys, those types of turkeys different? You know, the, the birds that we see at Thanksgiving, that the captive birds that we consume largely, 
those birds are bred to to stand still and be fat and not be aggressive towards one another and wild turkeys by design they they have pronounced dominance hierarchies they have what we often hear you'll hear them referred to as pecking orders where there are dominant individuals and and there are others and dominance matters in in the life of a wild turkey you know they're lean if you if you've ever harvested a wild turkey and you when you clean it you're realizing it is nothing but muscle you know they don't they're much much smaller than the domestic birds uh they have a they have a really keen uh ability to avoid predation because obviously i mean wild turkeys are geared like every other wild animal to do two things that's reproduce and not die you know so wild turkeys are are very very sharp they they have excellent eyesight uh they have vision um i'm sorry hearing that is much different than ours how so well they don't have an external flap on their ear like we do so you know our our ears funnel sound and then it our brain tells us you know what's going on turkeys they have you know ears but those ears are functioning independently of of one another and what they do is they as information is coming into their ear they're also turning their heads constantly and if you watch turkeys when they're just going about living their lives they're constantly adjusting their head and they're using a combination of their their vision which is extremely keen and they're hearing and and they're constantly adjusting their head in a way where they can pinpoint sound remarkably and if you're a turkey hunter you know this you you know you can you can literally call to a bird that's hundreds and hundreds of yards away from you and they they can end up standing there directly in front of you without hearing you again what are what do turkeys have to be worried about in the woods who are what are their predators well, if you kind of look at it from two perspectives, one would be the adults, at least the males, we are their primary predator. But you also, particularly with females, you see you know, bobcats and coyotes and uh, great horned owls. Actually, birds of prey can take adults. But when you start getting smaller in size, if you will, the the, the poults, the, the hatchlings, and the the eggs in the nest, boy, the the playing field really explodes. You know, everything from smaller birds of prey taking youngsters to snakes consuming eggs. A lot of your your smaller mammal predators, raccoons, opossums, skunks, uh, also eat the eggs. So it really depends on whether you're talking about adults or you're talking about the the nest. Could you kind of walk us through like what a turkey's maybe seasonal life cycle is like? Like this, we're in the we're in the fall now, so what what are turkeys normally doing this time of year? Yeah, so what they're doing right now is they're they're hanging around in fall flocks, and the reason they're doing that is because one, their safety in numbers, and two, they've transitioned out of the reproductive season over the spring and summer, and now they're they're gregarious. They they want to spend time around each other. That's that's by design. And these flocks are are usually, at least right now, they're composed. They're sex specific. So you've got flocks of males and you have flocks of females. And and although they 
they will end up in the same areas at the same time. They're not mingling together really right now. They're kind of hanging on their own. They'll go through the next few months in those flocks and those flocks can be quite large if depending on where you are, think, you know, dozens of, of birds. And then about March in in our part of the world, they're going to start splitting out of those winter flocks and they're going to end up in little small social groups with each other. So you may have three or four females that are hanging together and you may have three or four males that are together. And then they're going to go into the breeding season in those small groups. And then as you know, the only time of the year that they become solitary is during nesting. The females will, will go off and nest they'll stay by themselves. They avoid other birds you know, they're trying to be secretive and cryptic because they're trying to hatch a clutch of eggs and not be killed by while doing it. And then as soon as they either hatch a nest or, or, or not, if they happen to fail and not hatch, they start hanging around with other birds again. So and then kind of rinse and repeat that cycle. I didn't realize that they hung around sort of by like the guys hung out with the guys and the women hung out with the women. Basically, is that, a normal bird behavior is that something unique to turkeys no i mean you see that you see that in 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 various species what turkeys do is is kind of interesting in that the flocks in the summer that you see if you see a group of say 20 turkeys in june what those that what that is is a brood flock and what i mean by that is that's a group of hens that have hatched poults that summer and they amalgamate with each other. They flock up as a so you've got several old older females, and then you have their poults, which will be both male and female youngsters. But then once you get to about right now, you'll see that those brood flocks will start to split up. In that the females will stay together, the males are going to leave, and they're going to go form their own little small flocks of of young males. And that's that's what you see right now. If you see a, a group of turkeys together, they're either all females or they're all males. One of the things that, as I was looking into your research and hearing you talk, give speeches and that sort of thing, is that the population of turkeys seems to have declined in recent years, but that it's not real clear why that is. Am I right in saying it that way? Yeah, yeah. There There are some things that we know are driving population declines or let's say are factors in the decline but there are some unknowns for sure there's some things we just we don't understand and that's why a lot of the research <clears throat> excuse me that's why a lot of the research that's ongoing now is is being conducted because we we're trying to to desperately get answers and are you measuring that by just there maybe fewer turkeys that hunters are bringing back or, you know, you talked about it there being difficult to figure out how many turkeys there are to begin with. How are you concluding that there are maybe fewer out there in the wild? The data that we have is, is pretty clear in that we're seeing fewer young turkeys in our populations than we did several decades ago. And, and what that translates to is we're just not producing the turkeys that we did. And the reason for that is lower nest success, meaning fewer nests are hatching. Once they do hatch, 
most of the broods or the, the, you know, the groups of small young birds are not surviving. And there's a variety of reasons behind that, whether it be predation is a biggie. Uh, we do pretty, we have pretty clear evidence that the quality of our landscapes, at least from a brooding perspective, are not, are not good. Meaning we're lacking the, the type of habitats they need for those young birds to be able to thrive. And, and what would those, what would those be? It really differs on based on where you are, but no matter where you are, if you if you want to if you want to get a, a sense for what brood habitat is, there there's three check marks to do. One would be to just lay down on your stomach, and if you lay down on your stomach and you look out in front of you, that's the perspective that a say a, a five day old turkey poult has. So if you if you lay down on your stomach and you can see how to move around in front of you, so can they. The next thing you want to do is roll over on your back. And if you roll over on your back and you look to both sides of you, can you see something you could go hide under that you could duck under or somehow use to avoid being caught by a predator? And then the last thing you would do is hop up on your knees and if you can see over the vegetation in front of you, soak in the hen that's your mother, because she's the one that's taking you to places and allowing you to feed, and she's watching what's going on. And if you if you do those three things, I would challenge people that listen that hear this podcast to go out there and just pick spots anywhere and lay down on your stomach and see what you see. And I think what you're going to find most of the places I visit is the vegetation is much too dense. It's much too thick for young poults to be able to move around in it. Not saying they will not use it, but it's not the quality that they need. And the end result is we're seeing less production on our landscape. And and that brood habitat is one of the big the big things we we see is lacking. How did those landscapes end up being different? Whether you're in forest or open areas, if you kind of look at the way we, we treat the landscape. So if you're in forest, uh, the many of the forest I visit are not managed at all. In other words, they're not disturbed. And, and that may seem like a paradox, you know, Hey, let's disturb the forest. And that's a good thing. Well, it is. And disturbance could be anything from, periodic timber harvest to the use of prescribed fire to to stimulate and manage the understory or the the stuff growing on the ground if you go out in open areas you you may see pasture grasses that are planted for livestock those are typically sod forming meaning they're very thick and they're not disturbed except they're being grazed if you look at agricultural production on our landscapes today you see very that the field sizes are much larger than they were decades ago. You see that uh, the type of, of equipment we use to, to harvest crops is very efficient. It's very effective. We, we no longer use, you know, fence rows and things like that, that you would see on, say you, I can distinctly remember my great uncle's farm and Virginian fence rows and brushy areas around barns and 
we've changed how we how we manage or how we treat the landscape and that translates into changes to habitat and, and in many cases those have not been positive for turkeys how about the hunting aspect of that did they get over hunted at some point or did did like the bag limits change or anything over the years the bag yeah i mean hunting regulations have changed quite a bit through through time you know we went through a period where agencies were restoring turkeys meaning you know they were trapping and transporting turkeys all over the united states and and populations exploded and were doing quite well and and what you saw as a result you know state agencies liberalized hunting seasons they allowed them to get longer they allowed bag limits to increase because it could the resource could support that and and more recently what you've what you see and what you're going to continue to see honestly is is agencies scale back they're changing regulations you know under the reflection that populations are not doing well in some areas and they're lowering bag limits they're uh, reducing the amount of days in the hunting season so they're reducing opportunity you see a lot of states now that are that are severely curtailing or or actually discontinuing the fall the harvest in the fall you know so there's no there's no fall harvest allowed and all of that is in response to these declines that we've discussed when we come back mike chamberlain talks about getting hooked on studying turkeys but i was offered a chance to pick one of three projects to work on and i picked the turkey project after i caught the first bird you know i was trapping and putting radio tags on the birds which we still do that was it that and more ahead on southbound before we get back to this episode i wanted to ask for a little help with something if you enjoy southbound please give us a good rating and write us a review on apple podcasts or whatever podcast provider you have that allows such things. The more reviews and better ratings we get, the better chance there is that other listeners can find us. But to be honest, I'd just as soon you tell people about Southbound through good old word of mouth. If you could recommend it to just one person you know, somebody you might think would enjoy interesting conversations about the South, I'd be deeply grateful. If you have any thoughts about the show, guests to recommend, or anything that you think might make Southbound better, you can email me at ttomlinson at wfae.org. Thanks so much for giving us a little bit of your time. And now, back to my conversation with Mike Chamberlain. So Mike, I've, I've saved the obvious question until now. How did you get so interested in turkeys in the first place? in some ways I I don't know. (laughs) I mean, I I went to grad school and when I, when I, well, first of all, I mean, I grew up turkey hunting, so I, I, I've always had an interest in the bird. Uh, when I went to grad school, I was actually offered a chance to pick, which is not common, but I was offered a chance to pick one of three projects to work on. And I picked the turkey project after I caught the first bird you know, I was trapping and putting radio tags on the birds, which we still do. That was it. The first one I put my hands on when I started tracking them, 
trying to figure out what they were doing and why, why were they here and not there? I just became infatuated with the science that underlies the bird. They're, they're very interesting species. And to be honest with you through time, you know, I've been fortunate to study turkeys ever since I've, uh, the first day I became a graduate student and I've had agencies that relied on me to collect information for them on this bird. And through time, I've I've realized that the field of people that do what I do has gotten smaller and smaller and smaller. Once I started seeing the data showing these clear declines, it just it, it just struck me that you know what, if not me, who? I mean, it, we need to do something. We need to we need to collect some information. We need to understand what's going on, and that has kind of snowballed into where I am now, which is, you know, although I do work on other critters, 99% of what I do research-wise is is focused on this bird. Do you remember what your other two projects you could have picked from were? I do, very clearly. One of them was on wood ducks, and the other was on squirrels, of all things. I've become really fascinated with the with the bird, and I kind of look through two lenses, you know, at turkeys. I I'm a fanatical turkey hunter. I, I love to chase turkeys and and I know people will listen and think that's a bit of a paradox as well that you know you I've spent so much time conserving and managing and and trying to to make sure we have sustainable populations and then I I I I get joy out of hunting and harvesting them. But that has allowed me to to really view this bird through two lenses that are not mutually exclusive and I think that's been important. Can you articulate what it is about turkeys that makes them so interesting? I think, and to me, the fact that I can look at data that we have and I, I can see, quote unquote, see the data in my on my computer screen or, or, or wherever it is, and then I can spend time in the field chasing the bird, and so I get I get my butt kicked as a turkey hunter by their wits and by, (laughs) but I understand that they're wired. They're not, I don't view them as people, you know, as I don't, they're not personified. They're not, they're just trying, they're reacting to their environment. That really is interesting to me because they are a very complicated critter. They really are. I mean, if you, when you have species that have dominance, dominance matters and that that means that all the turkeys that are out there are not the same they're not the same birds they are there are individuals that are more important than others in the populations and what we and that's really interesting to me because we look at them and we don't always know who they are but in their world they know who each other is and they know who the dominant birds are, and those dominant birds are important. And that's really interesting to me because all of their behaviors can be traced back to some degree based on who they are in the population, whether they're dominant or not. And that it just it folds in another piece of complexity to me that I think is really interesting. I know I've heard hunters talk about going out of the woods year after year and seeing maybe the same old Tom or whatever out there in multiple years and sometimes leaving it alone because of what you said, that it was sort of the dominant turkey in the flock. 
have you had that experience too, or you've gone out and seen the same birds on kind of a, a regular basis and sort of gotten to know them a little bit? To some degree. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've been in situations where I was able to hunt the same bird repeatedly. That's a little bit easier in areas where you can see the birds and you know, quote unquote, know that you're hunting the same group of birds. Um, but in some cases, you know, we don't know that. Especially now that the technology is so modern, you mentioned something earlier about kind of tracking birds with drones and that sort of thing. How are y'all doing this research in the field? Is a lot of it just being out there with kind of boots on the ground or do you have lots of cameras out there, lots of tags? How does all that work? Turkey research is largely still boots on the ground, although the things are, are certainly evolving. So we you know, we, we start out our field work catching birds in the winter. We catch them in flocks using rocket nets or drop nets. And What's, what's a rocket net? A rocket net is a, a net that is actually deployed using um, explosives. Like, so imagine the net laying on the ground and it's covered up with leaves or vegetation. The birds walk up to, you know, in front of it and then it, it, it shoots over their their oh. heads and backs. We put mostly, not always, but mostly we put GPS transmitters on their back. It's a it's a little a little unit, just like a battery that sits on their back. It it's tied on with a harness around their wings, so they wear it just like we wear a backpack. And that GPS collects data constantly, so we know where the birds are. Uh, we know who they're around. We know how much they move. We know where they they roost we know where their nest etc uh where we collect blood from those from the birds we we get a dna sample if you will so we can we can figure out um who's related to each other uh, we do disease testing with that blood we deploy these listening devices in the environment that that record all sounds in the environment and we are using that to to describe their gobbling activity in the spring, which is related to, you know, that's a behavior related to mating. From there, we, we do, we do have some work with drones. We, we do a lot of, um, we actually, uh, collect all of the eggs that are hatched and we pull a segment of the eggshell membrane that's inside the egg and we can figure out whether it's a male or a female poult that hatched. We can figure out who the mother is. We can figure out who the father is using the maternal and paternal DNA from that sample. So things have gotten much more um, detailed and, and complex um, in regards to what we can do with the with the information we collect. Do you keep turkeys at all there on campus uh, or is this all done out in the field? All of my work is is on populations that are you know truly wild not suburban or, or urban populations and to be honest with you that's a real that's something i wish i could get involved with the, the problem is that being suburban urban type research because turkeys in suburban and urban areas particularly in the northeast appear to be doing quite well too well and you know in some situations to where they're a nuisance and uh, it would really be interesting to me to be able to study those urban populations and understand 
you know, what they're doing, how they're behaving, because they are behaving obviously differently because of the environment they're living in. It would, it would really be interesting to me to be able to, to do some research in urban areas, but it's hard to convince state agencies to put money towards that. What is there out there that something in particular that maybe you don't know yet about turkeys that you would love to learn? Gosh, uh, there's so many. One thing that we are we are close, I think, goes back to something we've already talked about, and that is we have to figure out how many birds are out there. We just we have to, we have to come up with a reliable estimate. the The data that state agencies collect, such as harvest numbers, you know, how many birds that it doesn't mean as much as it, it would if we knew how many were out there. Getting to that is something that really we we have we have to get there and we are we're we're getting there we're we're going I, I told someone the other day that I don't want to retire until we have a method to reliably tell a state agency how many birds are out there I I, I just don't want to step away from this game until I can do that and I might have to but I think we're getting close and the the other thing that really really interests me that until recently we just haven't been able to put our fingers on is we know with certainty that a small percentage of turkeys drive our populations in other words there's a small percentage of hens that are making all the the babies if you will there's a small percentage we we think of the of the males that are doing most of the breeding and what I want to, one thing that's really interesting to me is I want to gain clarity on what it is about that small percentage of those females that allows them to be so successful. They they have to be different. We have, are they more fit? We, of course they are. Are they older? Are they bigger? Do they behave differently? And we've done some of that work and it does appear that they do behave differently. They have a different strategy that they're using. Given that our populations have declined so dramatically in some areas, there are some birds that are making it work every year, and that's what we're finding. The same birds that are successful are successful every year. It's just that there aren't many of them. And if we could figure out what strategies those birds have and what resources on the landscape are most impacting them and their success, then that would allow us to start to become more surgical in how we how we look at the landscape, and and that's and we're getting close to to having that as well. The technology is there now to allow us to to really delve into some of these questions because the data we're collecting are so fine scale. I mean, we're 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 getting the the data sets we have. I mean, literally millions and millions of points of turkey locations that you could not have collected a decade ago. You you just couldn't, we couldn't do the things that we can do now. One last question. You you said earlier on about that first moment, you, you know, you tagged that first bird that, that you were kind of hooked from that moment. You get to spend a lot of time in some beautiful places, seeing some beautiful things. When you think about all that, is there like a moment or two that you've had that you really think, wow, I get to do something special here? There are places that I visit that become more kind of visceral to me than others. I like to be able to see. 
and I, I don't know if that's because I've grown up in the Southeast where I can't, you know, where, where it's forested and, and dense and, but like, I just came back from a trip to Montana and, and was lucky enough to go bird hunt for a few days, not, not turkeys, but other birds. And I love to see, I love to be able to see around me. I like to be able to see large, you know, great distances and, being able to turkey hunt out west is something that just I can't wait every spring to go out west. I just can't wait. It it and it doesn't have to be quote unquote, you know, the, the majestic Rockies or anything like that. It can be a prairie in South Dakota and it still just gets me really excited because the birds are observable. You can find them, you can hunt them. And you can see and you realize just how big this world is when you get out of the dense forest. Um, so being able to do that every spring is something I My dad I really, grew up in South really Georgia cherish. and talked about how back in the 60s, he would see flock after flock of turkeys just by the side of the road. You could almost reach out and grab one from the window of the car. Those days are long gone. We have turned so much of the wild turkey's natural habitat into soybean fields or housing developments. And we've left much of the rest a little too wild, making it hard for them to find food and shelter. As a researcher, Mike Chamberlain is frustrated at not being able to get a reliable measure of the wild turkey population. I get that. But I also sort of like the idea that there are still mysteries in the woods things that still count, even though they can't be easily counted. You know the old story that Ben Franklin wanted the turkey to be America's national bird is just a myth. But he did say that the turkey is, and I quote, though a little vain and silly, a bird of courage. I don't know, y'all. That sounds like a pretty good description of America to me. Southbound is a production of WFAE in Charlotte. Our main theme music comes from Joshua Lee Turner. You can listen to this and other episodes of Southbound on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, NPR One, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also subscribe for free to get each new episode sent to you when it's ready. You can also find Southbound on our website. Just go to wfae.org slash podcast slash southbound. See y'all next time. Thanks for listening.